Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is good to be back on the air with you all. And what do you know? We have finally reached the epilogue to this um, book topic uh, podcast series we've been doing, uh, being the victory with no name, the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. I must say, uh, given that this is the epilogue, we're at uh, episode 11, and it is fair to say that even after uh, 10 episodes going into this last one, have uh, taught us so many things that we didn't probably know before, and we are probably perhaps a bit better off now that we have uh, learned uh, this information. I mean, for one, it's easy to assume that even after the United States or the newly created United States had defeated the world's mightiest um, power in the Revolutionary War, it would have been easy to assume that, well, maybe this um, so-called United States government with this uh, ragtag army isn't so bad after all. Well, you know, it's that could be the case in one war, but what about somewhere down the road? You know, times change, leadership changes, and even the best of leaders sometimes can get outsmarted when dealing with an enemy or dealing with someone whom they may be on good terms with uh, short-term, but when it comes to uh, long-term peace and long-term relations, that always, um, you know, it either it can either make or break, but if there's no uh, certainty with long-term relations, then when it comes to going to war with that um, foreign, um, I don't know if I'd say in this case a foreign country, but, um, well, maybe on one hand, I guess you could say, because for the government, in terms of uh, making treaties, it wasn't just so much treaties with foreign nations like England and France and Spain, but foreign nations might as well have been Indians, too. And the government was making uh, treaties with various Indian tribes before, and, um, into the lead-up of what happened on November 4th, 1791, and yes, treaties were made after that, but I think it's fair to say um, that history has uh, taught us um, in a not-so-bright light where, unfortunately, a lot of uh, treaties made by the government and the Indians were not um, were not upheld by the government. Of course, that could be a whole other uh, topic for somewhere else down the road, but I have a good feeling I might mention something again about that uh, briefly, or somewhere again, uh, before the before we're uh, finished with the uh, epilogue to this uh, series. Uh, something that um, most of you all are probably already aware of, and for those of you who were with me uh, late last year when uh, I talked um, about the other side of the night, um, the uh, Carpathia, the Californian, and the night the Titanic went down. You know, what do you know again? Titanic is in the news. Well, it's not the ship. But, sadly, five people lost their lives. They went down, as you all know, in a submersible to go to the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean, two and a half miles down below the surface where it's pitch black. You go at your own risk. This um, this new adventure 
testing of what I might like to think of as testing the waters had been had begun just a few years ago. It had probably been in the works a lot longer. Starting prices were going for as much as $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars, folks. Let me ask you all this. Do you really think it's worth your life to go down to the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean for a quarter of a million dollars to visit a, a wreck of a ship, to visit a shipwreck, we'll put it that way, that, yes, has been um, filled with um, history that um, ended tragically. In other words, no one ever would have thought that Titanic's maiden voyage would have been her last. She was obviously built during a time when um, man was deemed to be invincible. And if man was deemed to be invincible, then Titanic was deemed to be unsinkable. And I'm beginning to wonder if these um, dives down to the depths of the North Atlantic led some to believe that maybe the submersible is unstoppable. In other words, no matter how many times the submersible has gone down, she's always come back up. There's never been a problem. Well, we found out now that there have been some issues. I'm not trying to get political here, folks, but, you know, there is a price to pay when we don't um, value safety when it gets to the point where we're more concerned about making a profit versus uh, safety. And it just so happens that the CEO of this uh, company went down, and sadly he lost his life. He was one of the five that lost his life, and his wife just so happened to have uh, distant relatives, relatives who came before her, whom were on the Titanic, and they lost their lives. And now this uh, widow has lost her husband, who led the, uh, the team, led the small group of uh, people down to the depths of the North Atlantic just to have a look at the Titanic, just to view the wreck. It just goes to show you that even after 111 years, folks, you know, Titanic is still, you know, Titanic still has secrets. But even, even a, a wreck as sacred as Titanic, maybe one of her secrets or maybe one of her omens could be that, hey, look, I know that submersibles have been coming down here ever since I was discovered uh, in terms of a wreck from Dr. Ballard back in 1985, but maybe there's no more, no more left to see of me. Let me rest in peace. Let the 1,500 people who died rest in peace. No more pillaging, no more looting. So much of that has been done. And while, yes, on one hand, maybe it's good to teach about the past, on the other hand, when, when those relics were brought up, we have to wonder, could those have been the meals that were eaten? Could those plates have represented meals that families um, enjoyed one last time before the... Um, inevitable happened well what i do know is that it, it was a real travesty what happened and maybe this uh, should be a wake-up call that um, daredevil missions or i guess you could say outrageous missions like this one should no longer be allowed to exist it's a miracle that this didn't happen before but it ought to be a reminder that um, that certain places 
especially the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean, 13,000, uh, 12,500 feet from the surface, below the surface, it needs to be left alone. It really does need to be left alone because if not, other, um, other consequences could follow, other uh, deaths could follow. So just let Titanic rest in peace once and for all. But anyways, I think it's time to get this show on the road uh, with the epilogue to the victory with no name. Here's our first leadoff question, folks. After the war had ended, that is the Indian War, folks, uh, from 1794, after that war had ended, did the federal government keep a military presence in the Ohio country? Yes, by doing so through means of establishing forts, which included posts of soldiers on guard duty that helped protect the overall flow of commerce that would have been coming in and out of the Ohio country. Well, I think it makes practical sense to have uh, soldiers on guard duty out of fear that, you know, if we don't have any means of protection where it's necessary, that Indians could somehow uh, disrupt uh, supply wagons filled with uh, commercial goods leaving or coming in, you know, to where if they um, attacked those people carrying those supply wagons, they could also steal the commercial goods. And then the receivers are uh, shorthanded uh, with nothing um, to gain. August 20th, 1795, 17 days after the Treaty of Greenville, men from Arthur St. Clair, James Wilkinson, Jonathan Dayton to Israel Ludlow, they all did something rather very unique, folks. They went about purchasing lands along the Miami River, which served as a vital supply route to the American forts. Hang tight for just a moment. So, these four men purchased lands along the Miami River. Well, it seems to me that maybe these men have struck gold and have finally been able to um, reap the rewards that they have been waiting for for quite some time. It just so happens that Dayton, Ohio, would become the most important settlement along the Miami River. Well, I can tell you this much, folks. There is a place in Dayton, New Jersey. There's a place in New Jersey, rather. I should say it's called Dayton, New Jersey. It's named after Jonathan Dayton. Jonathan Dayton um, happened to be the youngest um, member at the um, Constitutional Convention of 1787 to sign the United States Constitution. He was uh, 27 years old. Uh, he was born in 1760, the same year that uh, King George III uh, was uh, coronated as uh, King of England. And to think when Jonathan Dayton was born in 1760, there is a um, global conflict that uh, begun about four or five years earlier, uh, the French and Indian War, a.k.a. the Seven Years' War. The reason I mentioned about Jonathan Dayton, folks, uh, for those of you who were with me a couple years ago when I talked about uh, signing their rights away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution, well, for one, Jonathan Dayton was a spe land speculator. Two, uh, Jonathan Dayton um, helped... Um, spur the westward movement from his state into um, 
southwest Ohio and also uh, north of southwest Ohio, Ohio, in this case being north of Cincinnati into what we know is uh, present-day uh, Dayton, Ohio. And so uh, the uh, settlement along the Miami River, being that of Dayton, Ohio, was named in his honor. Now, I do hate to say this about Jonathan Dayton, but it is true. Uh, Jonathan Dayton got caught up in a um, scandal where he embezzled money from Congress, uh, just shy of $20,000, which was a lot of money. Of course, in today's time, that kind of activity would really be considered nothing in terms of not being risque by today's standards. I don't get, I'm not trying to sound political about that, but it is the truth overall. But Jonathan Dayton did embezzle about $18,000. He did find a way to repay the money uh, back to Congress. Okay, that's a a good, honest uh, deed. However, uh, when he passed away, uh, he died back in, he died in the 1820s, so he lived to be just over the age of 60. Where he was buried, uh, the church uh, relocated, but it didn't relocate far from its original grounds. It just so happens the church, where the church is located per where uh, Jonathan Dayton's uh, cemetery lies, Jonathan Dayton's cemetery cannot be found. Church members at the time decided that it would be best to not have Mr. Dayton's uh, cemetery uh, be exposed or be visible to uh, the public or for those um, whom, whom I should say were paying respects to other loved ones or people who had gone before them. Church members felt that if Jonathan Dayton's grave was visible, that someone out there might make the same mistakes that he did in terms of embezzling. So therefore, um, Jonathan Dayton's grave is not visible to the public. It lies underneath where uh, the church was relocated in terms of uh, new ground positioning. The federal government and the U.S. Army, um, yes, they were both weak in 1791, but a 360 reversal took place come 1794, three years later when both institutions proved to the American people that they had the strength to carry out order and resolve conflict in the West from the Indian War of 1794, three years later, to suppressing the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania. Remember, folks, those farmers in western Pennsylvania refused to pay um, taxes that Congress had enacted, or the first uh, tax that Congress enacted back in 1791, uh, Alexander Hamilton's uh, excise tax that um, that was geared towards gaining tax. It was money... Um, that came in the form of uh, collecting uh, taxes on the whiskey that was used to pay off outstanding debts from the Revolutionary War. But it got really bad to the point where the tax collectors were being tarred and feathered and threatened, even assaulted, to the point where Washington had to impose law and order. It's the only time, folks, where a United States president went into uh, combat. Although there was no bloodshed, but Washington did lead a, a, a group of about 13,000 militiamen into western Pennsylvania to help suppress this rebellion that did have potential of getting out of hand 
to where not only uh, the tax collectors' lives would have remained um, in jeopardy, but perhaps those uh, law-abiding citizens uh, as well. Did the Treaty of Greenville uh, remove outstanding existing hurdles that previously kept out further emigration, or I should say relocation, into Ohio? Yes, but despite the government's original layout plan for settling in Ohio, the arrivals of newcomers into Ohio exceeded government officials' regulatory game plan. So in other words, the government had a had a game plan already um, established as to which group of people were going to get um, first rights in terms of acquiring land. And they basically had a pyramidal scheme. And yes, it's a good scheme, but it turns out that it's probably just not going to work the way that they had intended it to be. Go, starting in 1796, folks, there were 5,000 Americans living in Ohio, or I should say white settlers. In 1801... 45,000 American settlers were living in Ohio. And come the year of 1803, the population exceeded 60,000. And when a territory in the Northwest exceeded a population of 60,000, that meant that the territory itself could apply um, for statehood. Well, given that Ohio's population went over 60,000 in 1803, Ohio uh, became an official state, the 17th state admitted to the Union, on March the 1st of 1803. The same year, folks, that the Louisiana Purchase went into effect, doubling the size of the United States. And by the start of the 1830s, Ohio emerged as the fourth largest populated state in the Union, behind New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. How about this question, folks? Did General Anthony Wayne live long enough to see Ohio get admitted into the Union? No. Uh, sadly, um, General Anthony Wayne died 16 months after the 1795 Treaty of Greenville on December the 15th of 1796. He died from uh, stomach ulcer complications at the age of 51. You know, maybe back then 51 was considered old, but obviously we know in today's time that's, you know, s still considered, I guess, to be young, a uh, young age to die from. But, you know, if one lived to be 50 back then, that might as well have been considered old age. What I found to be interesting about uh, General Anthony Wayne was that he was not seen as a strategist. In other words, a strategist is a... Um, an, is a military official whom prefers mapping out the objectives that lie ahead based upon how the goals are going to be achieved to properly uh, mobilizing um, re the resources on hand in uh, executing the actions. Uh, Anthony Wayne was not any of that. Or There was a reason why he was called... Um, Mad, um, he was referred to as Mad Anthony or Mad Dog uh, because he acted very impulsively. He was, a t he was more of a tactician, one whom instituted short-term uh, series of actions with short-term goals. And with these short-term uh, series of actions um, that went along with a short-term uh, range of goals, especially at Fallen Timbers, folks, those... Um, 
a short series of actions and short-term goals uh, did pay dividends. So, you know, yes, there's nothing wrong with being a, um, a strategist and there's nothing wrong with being a tactician, but if, the, but if you do achieve the end results, regardless of which way you go, then that's probably what matters when it's all said and done with. Now, I do, of course, as we all know, that uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana is named after uh, General Anthony Wayne. There are some uh, places, uh, like, for example, there is a place in New Jersey called Wayne, New Jersey. There is uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania, uh, Wayne, Michigan, all named after uh, General Anthony Wayne. I do know there is a, a county in New York State um, along Lake Ontario known as uh, Wayne County, named after General Anthony Wayne. So th whenever you hear of Wayne, Michigan, Wayne, Pennsylvania, or New Jersey, uh, definitely think of uh, General Anthony Wayne. Uh, what happened in 1792 being the first of its kind for the young American Republic? Well, the first, the first of its kind that happened uh, was not anything grand or uh, worth celebrating. A financial crisis took place resulting in a negative impact for land speculators whom now could not benefit in the rewards they had anxiously awaited. The 1792 crisis brought down well-known land speculators like William Dewar. I know we've mentioned his name um, a good deal, and I know it's probably been a while since we may have last uh, heard from uh, William Dewar. But William Dewar ended up going bankrupt, and it, it's bad enough that he went bankrupt, folks, but he got forced into debtor's prison in New York. If you were in debt, folks, remember back in those days there were no such things as Chapter 7, Chapter 11, bankruptcy. Uh, you didn't really have... Yes, you had lawyers that were specialized in, um, in different uh, facets of the law, but I don't believe anybody... Um, had any um, background with bankruptcy. So if you were in debt and you couldn't pay off your debts, you were sent to debtor's prison and you stayed there until uh, the debts could be paid off. And if you did have a family that did have money, then, and if they raised enough money to where they could get you out of jail in terms of the debts being paid off, then, then that was, you know, really a miracle onto itself. But once you got sent to debtor's prison, I think it's fair to say the chances of being able to make it out uh, were probably very slim to none. So for uh, William Dewar, he um, he got forced into debtor's uh, prison in New York, and he died uh, come the year of 1799, 1799 the same year that uh, George Washington uh, would pass away. The Ohio Company and Scioto groups both came apart, resulting in federal land sales becoming more prevalent where additional public lands catered to the masses and no longer to the few. So it seemed like there for a while, folks, that these uh, land sales or these land sale transactions, dealings, were only going to benefit the few and not the masses. Well, it just so happens, folks, that the masses meaning everyday middling people, everyday commoners, are going to be able to live the American dream by going west and, um, and living in what we now know as Ohio. Uh, what became of Rufus Putnam, who, is, who many historians say is the, uh, the father of Ohio, 
Uh, what became of Rufus Putnam after the 1795 Treaty of Greenville? Well, in, 1790, in 1796, he became Surveyor General of the, of the United States, or, or I should say the first Surveyor General of the United States, which included surveying the rest of the Northwest Territory. And he held this post uh, until the year 1803, um, which he uh, had stepped down. Now, in uh, 1802, uh, Rufus Putnam served in the Ohio Convention to form a constitution for the uh, state of Ohio. And how about this one, folks? Um, from 1804 to 1824, Rufus Putnam served as a trustee of Ohio University, which still exists today. The uh, collegiate institution that we know as Ohio University was built on public lands per the terms of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance. He died on May the 4th of 1824 at age 86. That was very, very old uh, for that day and time. Very few people probably might have lived to have been that old, but he lived to be um, 86 years of age. He's buried in Marietta, Ohio, which to me is um, properly fitting because after all, uh, Rufus Putnam and his family were the first to establish um, a settlement um, in the Northwest uh, Front, in the Northwest Territory, and that being Marietta, Ohio, was the first town established in the Northwest, named after Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI's wife. But Rufus Putnam did lead the way in helping establish the uh, settlement uh, known as uh, Marietta. And Ohio University, folks, for those of you who are curious to know where it's at, it's in Athens, uh, which is in uh, southeast Ohio, not too far from uh, Marietta, given that Marietta is located on the Ohio-West Virginia line. Hang tight for just a moment. How about our next question here? After the November 4th, 1791 debacle at present-day Fort Recovery, Ohio, what became of General Arthur St. Clair? Well, he remained in his post as Northwest Territorial Governor until 1802, when President Jefferson removed him from office. Later years saw him more under uh, poverty, sta poverty status. He lived in Cincinnati for a few years, only to return to Pennsylvania and operate an iron furnace. Sadly for... Um, Arthur St. Clair, folks, he never got over what happened in the aftermath of 1791. Even though he was tried, but he was uh, cleared, but he just never fully was able to get over what had happened to him. And yes, he did it, you know, he was very hesitant about going forward with the mission, but at the same time, he, he knew that even he could be um, subjected to... Um, to disciplinary measures if he did not um, adhere to what uh, President Washington and uh, War Secretary Henry Knox in, had instructed him to do. But when he died in 1818, uh, Arthur St. Clair was the, at the age of 81. Interesting enough to think that when Arthur St. Clair died in 1818 and uh, when Rufus Putnam died in 1824, uh, the President of the United States at that time was James Monroe, who was um, 
the last of the um, Virginia dynasty at that time. Uh, his presidency was from 1817 to 1825, known as the Era of Good Feelings. And to think when um, both of these men died, Rufus Putnam and Arthur St. Clair died, the Erie Canal was being constructed. Rufus Putnam died the year before the canal was officially completed. Uh, it had been uh, completed in um, various stages, but in 1825, that's the Erie Canal was officially completed to where uh, one could uh, embark on the journey starting all the way from the uh, Hudson River in New York, go all the way to uh, Buffalo, New York, 363 miles along the canal. Uh, how did uh, Ebenezer Denny fare following the outcome to the 1795 Treaty of Greenville? Well, for starters, in 1804, he was chosen as a director to the newly created uh, Pittsburgh branch of the Bank of Pennsylvania, which eventually joined into the Bank of the United States. In 1814, he was elected the first mayor of Pittsburgh, and he died in 1822 at age 61. How many Indian tribes were present at the Treaty of Greenville on August the 3rd, 1795? I'll give you all a number range. Uh, the, the range will be between 10 to 20. The answer is 12. There were 12 Indian tribes present, folks. Those 12 tribes were the Wyandots, the Delawares, the Shawnees, or as the Indian would, Indians would have pronounced it, the Shawnees, but um, from the Americanized version, it would have been the, the Shawnees, the Ottawas, Chippewas, Pot Potawatomis, Miamis, Eel Rivers, Weas, Kickapoos, Piankashus, and Kaskaskias. And I know some of you are thinking, why, why does it matter that the names of these tribes were listed? Well, it's one thing to uh, mention that Indian tribes were present at a treaty. But at the same time, we have to be reminded that Indian tribes, or Indians in general, are not all under the same roof. In other words, yes, there are the Sioux Indians, but they don't live in Ohio. They live in, the, in what we know as the Dakotas. The Sioux could be found in Minnesota, uh, probably in Iowa, Montana. Uh, so in other words, you know, we have to be reminded that not all Indians, you know, were in um, one block. So anyways, these 12 Indians, Indian tribes were present at the Treaty of Greenville. Uh, those chiefs whom led the fight for Ohio River boundary maintained the peace signed at Greenville. Some chiefs like Little Turtle, whom oversaw the Miami Nation, to Blue Jacket of the Shawnees, were competing for the honor of having led the Indians to their greatest victory from November 4th of 1791. I found uh, a lot of unique stuff on Little Turtle. He went on to become a regular visitor to uh, Philadelphia in Washington, D.C. So he visited Philadelphia when that was our nation's capital, and went, even when the capital relocated south to D.C., Little Turtle um, was a frequent visitor. He met three presidents, Presidents Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. You know, um, 
as we all know, uh, disease was one of the worst killers of Indian uh, tribes. Many Indian tribes, um, Indians had never come into contact with diseases like smallpox, yellow fever, typhus, uh, just to name some of the many uh, diseases that were sadly brought over from Europe into the New World when um, when contact was first initially made between Europeans and uh, various Indian uh, tribes. But there is some good news to report here, folks. During the time that uh, Little Turtle um, frequently had met um, government leaders in both Philadelphia and Washington, a, a unique first happened, folks. Little Turtle became the first Indian to ever have been inoculated against smallpox as well as for gout. So Little Turtle uh, did get inoculated and he survived and he was able to build up um, immunity to that um, ravenous uh, disease uh, that claimed so many people's lives. And when outbreaks did occur, I mean, people had to literally flee um, the cities, people had to flee um, to uh, seek shelter where they would not, if to avoid being uh, cramped around uh, tight quarters. You know, when I think of a, a smallpox outbreak, say during the 1790s, the one that comes to my mind is what happened in Philadelphia in 1793, um, knowing that 10% of the city's population died. And when my wife and I visited uh, Philadelphia two years ago, we got a tour in the historic district. And um, one of our stops just so happened to be, um, one of the stops happened to talk about the um, epidemic of 1793, a smallpox epidemic. And the tour guide said, for all we know, we could be walking. We could be literally walking over uh, corpses of dead bodies. Um given that so many people died and there, I mean, obviously there was no time to even be able to have a proper funeral that many bodies had to be um, buried um, in tight confines to where in some instances bodies were probably stacked upon one another. I'm not trying to sound gruesome folks, but, uh, but this is probably what happened. And as tragic as it was, it happened, um, to those uh, living in Philadelphia in 1793, we should also be thankful that um, that um, an Indian like Little Turtle uh, was able to be um, successfully inoculated against smallpox as well as for gout, and it and the government paid uh, for him to uh, be able to uh, receive the necessary medical care so that um, so that he would not only be able to return back to um, to visit government leaders in the future, but he would also be able to um, have resistance um, in not bringing back um, any uh, diseases to his uh, people. President Jefferson met Little Turtle in 1801, being the year that he became president. Knowing Little Turtle had been previously vaccinated for smallpox, Jefferson went out of his way to provide him with additional vaccinations and instructions for administering to other Miami peoples when returning home. Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson was very uh, fascinated with Indian languages. So he and Little Turtle had a lot to um, share in common over that. Although um, the Miami um, 
Indian Agency along with the government trading posts were built within Fort Wayne, present day uh, being in present day Indiana, the um, the government trading post um, was including the um, Indian Agency. They were both designed to uh, help reduce uh, the liquor trade. Sadly, the presence of alcohol alone left large numbers of Indians dead, more so than were lost during the 1794 battle at Fallen Timbers. One Indian said that, um, that many of us were left depressed after the treaty to the point where our numbers declined, and our numbers um, you know, declined to a point where you know, six years later, we still haven't gotten over the hump yet. I think that's what was said. So there is, you know, it's one thing to think, oh, we've signed this treaty and everybody's happy. Not necessarily. Little Turtle may have been okay, but what about the people below him? They weren't happy. And they had their reasons not to be happy because their way of life was being uh, forever altered. Between uh, 1808 and 1809, Little Turtle made his last visit to Washington. He died on July 4th of July 14th of 1812 at the age of 60, one month after Cong Congress declared war on England. War of 1812. One month after Little Turtle's passing, saw William Wells, his son-in-law, die on August 15th, 1812. William Wells had fought for the Miami Nation during the Northwest Indian War, um, and he was involved in the battle which led to St. Clair's defeat from 1791. He served as an interpreter for the Wabash Indian Nation at the Treaty of uh, Greenville in uh, 1795. You know, it seemed like uh, Little Turtle had more uh, success in adjusting to life after uh, the Treaty of Greenville, as for the Shawnee chief Blue Jacket, he wasn't fully able to adjust to the new ways of life uh, following the Treaty of Greenville. In 1796, Blue Jacket traveled with a delegation of chiefs to Philadelphia where they met with President Washington. I'm not sure what the end result was, but it seems like he may not have had the same success that Little Turtle did. In 1800, um, Blue Jacket helped uh, create a new town on the American side of, of the Detroit River where he raised livestock to trading alcohol to manufactured goods. And something else that, uh, that uh, Blue Jacket did, folks, that I wasn't sure at first if I should have men mentioned it, but it is something that I think we need to be reminded of, especially in the times that, you know, that people were uh, dealing with... Uh, just over 220 years ago, but it just so happens, folks, that uh, that uh, Blue Jacket, the Shawnee chief, owned slaves. And I have learned at Williamsburg, folks, at Colonial Williamsburg, and and this is just a fact um, that Indians not only did Indians own slaves, but slaves even owned uh, Indians, uh, freed slaves, that is. Uh, freed slaves even owned um, those whom were enslaved. I'm not trying to get political, folks. I'm not trying to um, cause any controversy or conflict. But this is stuff that I have learned, and I do have to remind myself that um, 
since the beginning of time, uh, one group of people have, you know, owned another group of people, or there have been various groups of people whom have owned other peoples. Um, it is a fact. Uh, the most important thing that we can do is, you know, learn about, learn as much as there is that's possible, even if some of it's not pleasant. Um, but I, I do think it might be worth, a, you know, learning more about, okay, how did um, Indians uh, successfully, or how, how not successfully, how did Indians go about owning slaves uh, and those arrangements, I should say, or, and the relations that went with it. So the bottom line is, folks, is that Blue Jacket, um, being the Shawnee chief, did own slaves for a period of time. Blue Jacket in 1805 went about signing the Treaty of Fort Industry, the successor treaty to the Treaty of Greenville that went about moving the eastern boundary of Indian lands in northern Ohio from the Tuscarawas River, including the Cuyahoga River westward, to a line extending 120 miles west of Pennsylvania, west of the Pennsylvania boundary. The Fort uh, Industry Treaty was signed somewhere along the Maumee River. Historians have not been able to uh, pinpoint where exactly. Uh, they just know that it took place along the Maumee River, but as for the actual spot site, they uh, do believe that that probably um, eroded over uh, the course of time. Hang tight here for just a moment. Uh, was the Native American defeat of the first American army considered to be uh, different for its time? Yes, indeed. But not so much on the grounds due to Indians rarely winning. But how about their style of fighting, being irregular, or I should say guerrilla? That, to me, was the most impressive thing, because... When one fights an irregular, uh, when one engages in, in an irregular style of uh, fighting that's non-conventional, their means of inflicting casualties against the enemy is the bigger story. And that's really what happened on November 4th of 1791. It wasn't so much that the Indians had defeated the first American army, it was how they went about doing it. And the fact that they were able to inflict casualties upon forces whom had either not adapted to the newer fighting strategies available, or simply did not have the leadership from above that could adapt to new surroundings in uncharted territory. So, we have to be reminded that even... Um, the Americans knew about guerrilla-style fighting. And I know that I've mentioned it a couple of times in other podcasts, especially for uh, George, young George Washington in uh, Monongahela in 1755, and how he was able to um, lead those uh, out of harm's way whom had not been uh, shot or severely wounded, knowing that General Braddock lost his life and nearly thousands of others simply in part because Braddock had chosen to be ignorant. He had been warned by uh, Indians whom were willing to be on the uh, British side that, hey, look, if you want us to be on your side, you're going to have to uh, adapt to new styles of fighting. 
Did Braddock listen? No. Washington knew this. He tried to persuade his superior commanding officer, but he didn't listen. You know, um, you know, and another uh, good example of this irregular uh, style of fighting that finally came into um, that finally came into use was during the American Revolutionary War in the Southern Campaign. You know, when Nathaniel Greene arrived, he basically said to those below him, "Look, if we engage the British in one more major battle, in one more major battle, we're done." I mean, yes, uh, Camden was a bad debacle. That was a uh, Horatio Gates's um, last stand, and um, the fact that Horatio Gates wanted to fight a conventional style of fighting in the Carolinas was a joke. Yes, just before Nathaniel Greene arrived, yes, we um, the Americans got a victory that was much needed for morale purposes at Kings Mountain, North Carolina or Kings Mountain, which is right along the North South Carolina line, I should say. But despite that uh, much-needed victory, Nathaniel Green said, look, if we engage the British in one more battle, as of right now, uh, a huge battle, and we lose, we're not going to have an army. The only way to keep Cornwallis and the British forces in the Carolinas long-term is to engage in irregular style of fighting. Well, it was adopted, and it paid huge dividends. So I'm thinking to myself, after having read this book, you know, where was some of this leadership in 1791? Well, some of the uh, Revolutionary War generals had passed away before 1791, Nathaniel Green being one of them. He sadly uh, died uh, five years after the uh, siege of Yorktown. But I do wonder if Nathaniel Green had lived... Would he have uh, partaken in the uh, Northwest uh, Territory campaign? And, and I believe he would have. And for all we know, maybe he might have been um, leading uh, this army into what we know. He, they may have gotten to Kekionga, and maybe they would not have been routed. Who knows? There are a lot of what-ifs. But what, but what we do know is that um, General Anthony Wayne wasn't afraid to fight uh, unconventionally via irregular guerrilla-style fighting, and um, that was uh, probably the biggest um, adjustment or uh, readjustment, uh, reinventing tool that was needed for to improve the image of the uh, American army of its day. The stunning Indian victories from 1755, uh, Braddock's army defeat, uh, 1791 defeat of the first American army to defeating Custer's uh, 7th Cavalry in 1876 all produced mass casualties for enemy parties. But over the greater course of America's history, which has shown that American Indians participating in America's wars have fought alongside by being part of the U.S. Army, but not against it. Let's keep this, this in mind, folks. I, matter of fact, I was just blown away by the numbers here, folks, uh, the Chickasaw Indian Nation had served at, served the U.S. Army as scouts in both St. Clair's and Wayne's uh, campaigns. The Indians, um, in general, had fought on both sides of the American Revolutionary War. We know that four of the uh, six Iroquois um, 
four of the six tribes in the League of the Iroquois um, did fight on the side of the British. The other two um, sided with the uh, Patriots, if that tells you anything about uh, rift and uh, splits amongst uh, Indian nations. Uh, Indians on uh, Indians were involved in the War of 1812 on both sides, including, believe it or not, the Civil War. That I would never have uh, thought of. But yes, folks, there were American Indians fighting in the Civil War. I'm not sure which side had the majority, but I would think that probably the majority of Indians whom fought in the Civil War probably would have fought on the, uh, the side of the Union. Indians from multiple tribes served alongside the U.S. Cavalry as both scouts and allies per the Indian Wars out west in the second half of the 19th century. 12,000. Why is that number unique? Well, that represents the number of Indians serving in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War I. While their casualty rate was more than twice the overall rate for American soldiers and sailors. And hard to believe that in a year from now, being 2024, will mark the centennial of this uh, occasion. Nearly 100 years ago, in 1924, Congress made all American Indians U.S. citizens. All right. Well, that, you know, to me is a, a nice gesture, a nice means of recognition. But service or acts of service for Indians, they viewed this more as means of uh, devotion to their native land and families versus doing so out of loyalty to the U.S. government. So when they're serving a cause, they're doing it more for their families and uh, meaning that, you know, we're, we want to defend you all. We're, we want to defend our homeland. Yes, the conflict may not be here. It might be overseas, but we are representing you all. We're not doing this so much for Uncle Sam, but we're doing it for you all whom, um, whom have looked after us, and it's our job also to look after for the future from within. Did Indians continue serving in their uh, country, or did Indians continue serving their country into the second half of the 20th century? Yes, despite the fact that the U.S. government continued to not recognize previous Indian uh, treaty agreements uh, to unfortunately attacking tribal independence, including cultures. i Hate to say that, folks, but there um, has been a lot of unfortunate injustice or injustices um, that were uh, committed against um, Indians um, over the course of uh, time. Uh, the most, um, to me, uh, if one if if one asked me, what do you think was sadly one of the more uh, notorious ones? I would almost have to say uh, the Trail of Tears. That happened um, in the 18th, that began in the 1830s. Uh, President Andrew Jackson had signed into law the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which pretty much removed um, all Indians uh, east of the Mississippi, uh, being most notably the Cherokees, the Chickasaws, uh, Choctaws, Creeks, uh, a handful of uh, Indians in the southeast and what we know as Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia were all forced to go west of the Mississippi and establish um, new um, new dwellings in what we know as present-day Oklahoma, basically. So that, to me, has not been a um, 
a bright spot in history. And, you know, as like I've said before, I'd say it again, yes, as much as I enjoy history, I, you know, have to be constantly reminded that there have been um, acts that have taken place in history that have not always been for the better. But I do believe it's up to us as as individuals to learn about it and try to do what is necessary to ensure that, you know, stuff like this just doesn't happen again. Uh, Ten to 15,000 is the... Uh, is the total number of Indians serving in the Korean War. 40,000 was the number of Indians whom served in Vietnam. And they did so as volunteers, given many others had sought to avoid, to avoid the conflict or being part of it because of political opposition. The Iraq War's uh, first American female death just so happened to be a 23-year-old uh, named Lori Piastua, Piastua, a Hopi Indian who grew up on a Navajo reservation in Arizona. She was a single mother to two kids. And she was willing to um, sacrifice her life so that, um, you know, those, say in this case, those in Iraq whom had been uh, sub subjected to a brutal dictator could no longer have to you know, live in, um, in such a, um, in such a state of, um, terrible oppression or, uh, uh, what do you call it? Terrible, uh, rule. Native American soldiers have received, uh, proper home welcomings, which include, which have included community dinners, dances, powwows. Although they display their American flags when it comes to honoring those whom have served in America's wars, there still remains a great deal of mixed feelings amongst uh, many Indians regarding America's past relationships and encounters with Indians, whose results did not always bind people of two different nations for better long term. Yes, there are two different nations, folks, two different peoples, two different ideologies. Yes, they may have some things in common, or yes, they may uh, benefit from one another, Whatever alliances did exist were only short-term. If there was anything long-term, it was really in the minority. But yet, there would always seem to be something that could stand in the way where if an alliance did um, have success long-term, it would just be a matter of time before that alliance uh, was broken apart for whatever factors lied at stake. Although times have changed, Indians, or I should say Native Americans, still remain steadfast in their beliefs or values when protecting what's sacred, being family to homeland, not just domestically but internationally as well. Attacking American troops to defeating the first American army on the morning of November 4, 1791, represented upholding all things deemed sacred in present and future. Domestically, meaning that the Indians were fighting um, to preserve their way of life, to preserve their uh, traditions, their customs. In other words, their way of life being the land that they grew up with from one generation after another. Internationally, having to fight an invasive species that wasn't welcomed, being the, the white man or the U.S. government, an international outsider, who, whose objective 
is not only to take our land, but to profit off of it and welcome a whole host of people um, onto our lands to where the flood, to where the gates would never close. So, yes, defeating the first American army on the morning of November 4th, 1791 for the Indians, it was um, not only a domestic matter, but an international matter. Well, that covers it, folks, for this uh, series, and it, it has been a great ride. Uh, we have learned a great deal about just how, I guess on one hand, we could say just how far our republic has come, but most of all, the struggles that fate, that our republic faced in 1791. And while, yes, we may have come away as a stronger army in 1794, and perhaps a, a bit stronger as a nation, it is probably fair to say that for the success that was made over a three-year span, there were other things that perhaps did not uh, turn out for the better. But that has probably been that way since the beginning of time. However, we must be reminded that even um, when America did defeat the world's mightiest empire in the Revolutionary War, it didn't mean that uh, we were immune from any other uh, conflicts that would lie um, down that would lie ahead in the foreseeable future. I will have to admit to you all that even in the midst of um, being routed in 1791 and emerging as a stronger um, military three years later in 1794, it would not be the first nor the last time where um, America's military would be caught off guard and have to learn from um, from an incident that uh, shook the foundations of, um, of her uh, governing uh, system. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and I'm not sure when I'm going to be back on the air again next, but I will tell you all this. Um, I will be going on assignment here soon, uh, so if you don't um, he hear my voice on the air for a while, um, it, it, would, it means that, number one, I'm, I'm on assignment, and two, uh, for all I know, I could be in the works of trying to, um, I could be in the works of trying to, uh, to decide where we're going to go next, because I do promise you all somewhere down the road in the foreseeable future, uh, in the not too far foreseeable future, I will be on the air again next and in discussing a new season of a new uh, book topic uh, podcast series. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air, and uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. Uh, take care and stay safe wherever you all may live. <music>